Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to welcome into the studio John Arnott, who's uh, Manager of Horticulture out at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. Hi, John. Good morning, Pam. How things? Oh, not too bad. Not too bad. Yep. Yes. That's good. The doggies won last night, so I can smile. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, they did. <laughs> and, and how did they win? They won well. Oh. I yeah, well, I mean, there, was a, there was a moment, wasn't there? I couldn't stay up till the end, <laughs> okay. but I, I stayed up till about halfway through the third quarter, right. and then I thought, I'm, I'm going to risk losing my voice if I watch this any longer. So <laughs> Turn I went to the 3CR all cro- croaky and. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's happened before, yeah, believe sure. me. <laughs> Yeah, no, the, the Swannies, look, they were, they, were, they were coming back at you hard. But, yeah. Uh, kicked the last couple we of We hung was, in there, thank you. Oh, you did more than that. Yeah. You, you were the better team all night, I thought. Yeah, yeah. we certainly were in the first half. Yeah. Wow, yes. Hey, this has not much, got little to do with the gardening. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't matter. <laughs> but it's matter. about Melbourne, isn't it? It's about, of isn't course. it great to have the footy back? Oh, yes. It's great to have the footy back. I love the footy. It's, it's a great people leveller. Yep. Everyone has a footy team. Yep. Yeah, yep, everyone has a footy team. Absolutely. And uh, you could be the CEO of a company or, you know, something other. Exactly. And all you are is a footy supporter. Yep. It's good. <laughs> Too right. Yeah. Okay, back to gardening. Yeah, back to gardening. <laughs> <laughs> and, and happy National Eucalypt Day for yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. Yes, and we must talk about that in a bit more detail. <laughs> yeah, we should, yep. But um, tell me, did you have any, any special events planned down at Cranbourne yesterday? We did. Uh, we, we've got one of our staff members, Russell Lark, who, um, if there's a, a, a eucalypt nut, a eucalypt nut, <laughs> <laughs> a, a eucalypt fanatic, he's the fanatic amongst the fanatics. Okay. Um, an extraordinary individual. He ran a, a, a tour which was looking at small eucalypts for home gardens. All right. Uh, I think the, there was an hour and a half set aside. I'll almost guarantee that it went, went, for, over. A, went for a little <laughs> bit longer than the hour and a half. Yep. Um, yeah, so Russ did a, Russ did a tour of... Um, uh, we're looking at the, uh, a, a range of eucalypts that we're growing and displaying in the Australian garden that, mm-hmm. are, that are nice small eucalypts that are suited yes. for domestic gardens of all shapes and sizes. Um, so yeah, that was our that was our event uh, yesterday. Good because uh, because so many people are too scared of eucalypts. You know, they say, yeah. oh, they, they they get too big, they drop branches, yep. you know. And th- and some of them do get pretty big and some of them do drop do branches. Drop branches and but not all of them. No, no, that, that's right. In fact, I, I was uh, a little while ago, I was visiting um, the Mount Tomar Botanic Gardens, oh, yes. the Blue Mountain Botanic Gardens, and I knew of a population of a eucalypt there, Eucalyptus cunninghamii, which, at fully grown, would not be much more than 2.5 metres. Wow. And it's a mallee. Yep. So 2.5 metres by about 4 metres wide. Yes. It's, it's, it's a big shrub. And that's, that's a probably a two or 300-year-old tree. Mm. Um, it's still a tree. Yeah, it's still a tree. <laughs> <laughs> Just. I, I'd actually really like to, like to know what the definition of a tree is. It's got to have something to do with woody tissue and a height and form and stuff like that. But this eucalyptus cunninghamii... Um, it's a it's a large shrub. Yeah. In 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 effect. Perfect. And perfect for a garden. Yes, absolutely. Um, but then again, you've, then you've got a whole suite of other 
you know, very, very large eucalypts that, um, and, you know, some of them are a little bit fluky and drop branches, like eucalyptus botryoides. Mm. Don't know, I'd be suggesting you put that in a, a, a home garden. No, no, fair it's a, enough. a big, brittle tree. Yes. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's... It's horses for courses, and it's eucalypts for... Of course. Um, and there's a whole suite which are really suited for... for, for and they've done, a, they've done a lot of work with um, so-called dwarf um, flowering gums, yeah. haven't they, yeah. recently? And, so uh, some of those are amazing. Yeah, yeah, and, and some really interesting work which is happening now. So the dwarf flowering gums have been put onto grafts, so they're, they're grafting onto eucalyptus maculata, I think, or crimbia maculata uh, in the main, um, and, and that's about having the... the the, the size and the colour and the form consistent. Um, but there's been some work, and those graphs are a little bit of an issue. Okay. Uh, that graft, graft union can be uh, n- not always great. Okay. Um, so you can get some failing of the graft union and, 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 and things like that, or incompatibilities. And yep. But there's been some work done recently over at King's Park, which is about tissue culturing um, e- eucalypts. So you're still getting clonal material, but clonal material on its own roots. Right. Um, which... Arguably, he's going to pr- 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 produce. Come on, get the word out. Produce a, uh, a a better garden plant or a better, a more stable, more stable, plant, yes. a more stable plant yes. in the garden. Yeah, great. Right. Um, but yeah, so so there's been a, a a lot of work happening in the last fifteen or twenty yep. years Fantastic. on um, selecting eucalypts. Mm. And you know, it's not a one size fits all. No, no. exactly. Mm. We must say a very good morning to Chloe Foster. Morning, Chloe. Good morning, Pam. And look, I don't want to talk about the football, so let's just let's that's fine. Let's move straight <laughs> Fast on. Fast forward. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was very exciting celebrating National Eucalypt Day. It was good, isn't it? Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you're so right. There's so many species of small eucalypts that people can put in their gardens that don't drop branches. Yep. That don't make <clears> too much of a mess. Yep. That don't get out of control. That have got beautiful flowers. There's like 1,500 species in the... Or 700, 1,500 acacias. There's about seven or 800 species seven or 800 in the and genus. Then, yeah, that's so right. And then if you throw in the carimbias and yes. the angophoras. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a mega group. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. there's, there's got to be the right one for a particular spot. Uh, and Chloe was just saying off air that, that you had a conversation last night with Russell. Yes. And there's no such thing as a short conversation of, with <laughs> Russell about you. No, it, it pushed an hour of conversation <laughs> and it was about plants the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> He's pretty great, isn't he? He's awesome. He's absolutely brilliant. I mean, he might be yeah. listening this morning, so oh, I'm sure well, uh, can I, on his face uh, right now. Well, I need to retract some comments. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's an absolute eucalypt nut. Yeah, he is a eucalypt nut. He's, his knowledge of... of Eucalyptus, Angophora, Corimbia, the whole the whole group is absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's it's not quite second to none, but it's right mm. up there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And um, very passionate. Yeah, and you've 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 done a bit of collecting in the wild with Russ, and yeah, yeah, yeah. He's it's a, a lot of fun. He's a good mate. He's a very good mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's good stuff. Yeah. Okay, we also have to say a very good morning to Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. Morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everyone. Yeah, those the eucalypts. So that, do you have uh, gimlets down in Cranbourne? Uh, we have we have we have a couple of gimlets. Uh, uh, and how did, how did they go? <laughs> uh, look, it's 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 really interesting. There's gimlets, there's mallets, there's mallies. Uh, mm. You know, th- within that 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 diverse that great diversity of eucalypts, some of them are going to make good garden plants, and some of them aren't. Um, and uh, up on House and Hill, that's where. Because it's sort of deep sandy soils in the main, uh, that's where we get most uh, success for for those inland uh, inland eucalypts, uh, and that's about just not being winter wet. 
you know, some of those inland things, they, they don't really appreciate the, the, the winter wet. They sulk. Uh, that's for sure. And we, we see where these things come from. Yeah. <laughs> South of Kalgoorlie and running across mm. to the rabbit proof fence. And <laughs> yeah, I did a special trip and trying to hunt down uh, gimlets um, that my father used to talk about. Uh, Which ones were they? Can you um, I'm not too sure of the species, but it's the, the one around uh, the Eastern Lakes District. So Lake King, Lake Cam, Lake Valley, Holt Rock. That's okay. there. Um, Russell might call in. That's, that's, that's <laughs> just one of the most extraordinary trees. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking of um, Asa grissium, the paperback maple. And you know, we've got a couple of those, and they're quite nice, but they don't compare with <laughs> this particular gimlet um, uh, for this oh, salmon yeah. uh, glooming bark. And the stems, which are actually fluted and, and um, braided, the, the, the stems are just unearthly. Um, and that's a smaller tree, of course. That's, uh, well, the ones I came across were up around about six, eight, ten metres absolute but max. Eucalyptus salubris? Yes, I yeah. think so. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, beautiful thing and, and uh, very slow growing. And, and um, um, my father and my grandfather were clearing a block of land to grow wheat at the time. Okay. And, and, and the gimlets yeah. pretty well yeah. stopped yeah. them. <laughs> <laughs> the gimlets stopped them in their tracks pretty well. As so in, they, they couldn't knock them over. No, they, they were tough little trees. Yeah. Um, it's but absolutely stunning trees. Uh, you, you would grow, ornamentally, you would grow those for their form and bark. Yep. And I think that's the thing with many of the eucalypts, actually. And, the, and, and I'm, I'm from the Dandongs and, and the, the, the mountain ash, the regnans, uh, um, they're best as a, as a forest. Yep. And driving through a forest is one of the most unearthly experiences. Yep. And likewise, the um, gimlets and the <laughs> against the rabbit-proof fence, and it is the same rabbit-proof fence that the... Uh, those girls were film. trekking along, yeah. yes, uh, but right on the south, the south end of it rather than the north end. Yeah. Um, uh, those those gimlets, uh, well, they they, um, they grow in stands and, and many acres, hundreds of acres hundreds at a time, acres, yes. and it's the repetition of the trunks and 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 the form of the tree, which yeah. is what you look for. They've, they weren't flowering when I saw them. But, oh, Gosh, they, it was one of the most unearthly experiences to walk through this patch of gimlets. Yeah. Mm. I was just up in, um, up in the Wimmera on a, on a bike ride. I, I, I had a look at all of the painted silos in, the, right. in, the, in the Wimmera. It was a really beautiful thing to do. Um, but similar, it's different, but, but similar with the Eucalyptus bariana, the, the bull mellies. Mm-hmm. They're the sort of the dominant tree through a lot of that country. Um, and slight variations, some orange, some a little bit grey, um, but there's a, it's, it's just really beautiful to see these things in their natural condition, yeah. in, their, in their, where they belong. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So yes, there was a lovely segment on Gardening Australia uh, on Friday night on the, uh, uh, on the Arboretum. Um, Currency Diga- Creek Arboretum. Yes, yeah. and, and, uh, and uh, just one tree at a time, but I, I was sitting there watching and thinking, but that's the problem. You really needed several thousand acres. You've got to plant 50 or 100 of each <laughs> <laughs> specimen. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got a sensible Arboretum. Uh, and then you've got to wait uh, yeah. you know, years, and years and years and years for these things yeah. to reach maturity. Uh, it's a little bit it, of a tricky thing for one person to do, I it's suspect. visionary and extraordinary mm. and magnificent. One, mm. one horticultural tip that that um, Evan uh, Klukas at Karanga has done to create an instant mallee tree effect is planting three trees in the one, one hole so that you get 
that instant mm. multi-stemmed effect. Horticultural madness, Chloe. It is. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm sure there's a fair bit of competition. Well, there's a lot of competition going on in, yeah. in, in nature anyway. Yeah. But, um, so you produce three things that look like one. Looks like one. Nice. Yeah. And you get it doesn't take 50 years or... You don't have to have a... a you don't have to wait a, 200 a, years for it to a look... A ground destruction event in order <laughs> yeah. for it to branch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need a fire to go through three no. times for it to reach you again. <laughs> yeah, okay. So plant three in the one hole. Yep. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good idea. Yeah. yeah Sounds like, like a nurseryman's trick, actually. <laughs> 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 okay. Well, I think uh, it's time that I got to a few community announcements. Uh, first up, a reminder that... Um, there are two gardens open for Open Gardens Victoria today. Uh, the first is in Elstonwick. This is a very tranquil yet practical uh, space. And the other one is uh, a seaside courtyard garden in Hampton. Now, the, uh, the Elstonwick one, the address is 43 Bertram Street in Elstonwick. It's open 10 a.m. this morning, running through until 430 Entry is $8, uh, children under 18 free, students $5, and there will be a sausage sizzle at that one as well. The other garden is um, the Seaside Courtyard Garden. This is at 46 Beach Road in Hampton. Uh, again, open 10 through to 4.30 today, and the same entry fees, $8 entry, children under 18 free, students $5, and the landscape designer, Rick Molino, We'll be in the garden all morning today um, to have a chat with anyone that wants to uh, talk to him about his design. So uh, those are both happening today. Now, coming up during the week, um, Michelle Adler uh, from uh, Friends of Burnley is giving a couple of talks. The first one uh, will be on the 25th of March. She will be at Mornington Heritage Rose Growers and she'll be talking about evolution of a wetland. That's taking place at 2pm and it will be in the garden room at Mornington Rose Garden, Tyab Road in Mornington. The second one is a talk for the Friends of Burnley Gardens and uh, this is on uh, Tuesday the 26th uh, and this is on Papua New Guinea Highlands and Islands. It's an illustrated talk by both Michelle and Rod McMillan. Uh, 7 o'clock for a 7.30 start. And uh, they're going to be talking about the forests of the highlands, dripping with dendrobians, uh, living in a native coastal village near Weewak, learning to grow sago and beetle nut, a volcanic climb in Rabaul, a long boat trip up the Sepik River, and uh, meeting Bougainvilliers in Bougainville. So uh, it should be a very, very interesting uh, talk about that. As I mentioned, 7 o'clock for uh, Nibbles, then 7.30 for the talk. Now, cost, if you're um, a member of the Friends Group, $10. If you're a non-member, $20 for that one. And uh, it will be held, of course, out at Burnley College in uh, the main building, room 10, for that one. So that is next uh, Tuesday, uh, as I mentioned, out at Burnley. Doesn't that sound fantastic? Oh. That sounds like a fun cracking talk. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. <laughs> meeting Bougainvilliers in Bougainville. Yeah, sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> it's better than meeting Bogans in... <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Now, uh, also... Um, 
Friends of Burnley have got a, an autumn plant sale coming up the following day on Wednesday, next Wednesday, 12 through till 3. They'll have a selection of native and exotic trees and shrubs, perennials, bulbs, succulents, indoor and food plants. This will all take place on the lawn behind the Student Amenities Building. Simply follow the signs. Uh, there is parking in Yarra Boulevard. There's no car access to the actual campus and uh, payments by cash only. Now, you can go to their website for the full plant list of what they will have for sale, and uh, their website is www.fobg.org.au. So that's www.fobg.org.au for that full plant list. Now, coming up, uh, next Thursday, 28th of March, um, the Australian Garden History Society have got their next talk coming up. And uh, this will be uh, held in uh, Mueller Hall in the National Herbarium, Birdwood Avenue, South Yarra. Uh, Greg Johnson will be speaking. Uh, refreshments from 6 o'clock. The lecture starts at 6.30. And uh, Greg will be talking about... Um, the late 19th century and the end of the Victorian era, uh, seeing a more diverse and confident Australia emerge. Technology, science, new forms of communication and a robust democracy heralded the start of the modern era. era. So Greg's lecture will explore the garden publications and the writers in the period from 1888, uh, the century of European settlement of Australia, up to 1938, so 150 years after their arrival. The talk will cover writers and writing during the Federation, Edwardian, World War I and Depression periods. And uh, the lecture continues on from his earlier lecture that he gave in 2016 on uh, pioneer garden writing in Australia. Uh, now, as I mentioned, uh, 6 o'clock for refreshments. The lecture starts 630 now, for members of the Garden History Society, $20. Non-members, $25. Students, $10 with a student card. And uh, you can book online using trybooking.com uh, forward slash capitals BBDHB. So uh, BBDHB, if you're wanting to book that. If you'd like more information, you can phone Robin. Her number is 0418 353 528. Uh, now, uh, just uh, a couple more. Uh, firstly, uh, Kevin Hines Grow, which is a registered NDIS provider, are having an open day autumn fair and plant sale coming up Saturday, 30th of March, 9 a.m., running through till 3 p.m., they're going to have out their barbecue, coffee cart, fruit, trees and veggie seedlings for sale, secondhand books, homemade preserves, herbs, perennials and succulents and there'll be a free kids' corner as well. Kevin Hines Grow is at 39 Weatherby Road in Doncaster and if you'd like more information there, number 9848. 3695 and those proceeds will be going towards helping uh, uh, the uh, wonderful programs that they do run out there. Uh, 
And finally, um, Keylor Plains Group of the Australian Plant Society um, are holding an Australian plant auction on Friday, April the 5th. So this is one for the diaries at 8 o'clock. You'll have a chance to pick up some amazing species that can't be sourced elsewhere and chat about how to grow them to the people who propagated them. Supper will be provided halfway through, through the auction. Um, the venue is the main hall Raleigh Road Activity Centre. That's at 54 Raleigh Road in Maribyrnong, and that's spelled R-A-L-E-I-G-H, Raleigh Road, Maribyrnong. And uh, if you'd like more information, you can contact Anne. Her number is 933-63228. That's 933-63228 for that one. Now, John, you've brought in an amazing book you wanted to have a chat about. Yeah. Yes, it was launched a couple of weeks ago. Okay. It's called Kangaroo Grassland to Geelong Botanic Gardens in Eastern Park, a chronological pictorial history. Right. Um, And it's 400 and something pages of self-published a publication. Ian Rogers, uh, it was research and written by Ian Rogers, who was the director of the Geelong Botanic Gardens for 20 years leading up to uh, the sort of late 1990s. Um, and it, it's an ex- so it's self-published. Yes. It, I, I think it started with Ian having a, a, a written down chronology of the history of the gardens. Okay. He's a really keen photographer and photographed a, a number of events as they as they happened so in his back catalog he he retired a few years ago but in, in his back catalog he had uh, a really detailed sort of written chronology <coughs> and a fantastic pictorial um library right. of, of 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 things that had happened perfect um and he started to update the chronology and started to uh, annotate some of the notes he found himself a couple of weeks into that project thinking I think this is a book. <laughs> <laughs> it took him. It took him about four years I from, can from, from, that, from that point. So, what, but once you're in, you're in. Yeah, I, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, so, congratulations to Ian. It is a. It's a fabulous publication um, that goes through the various era and all the different curators and directors at the uh, at the gardens and their, you know, their achievements and their challenges and. Um, uh, their legacies? Uh, their legacies, yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, so a, a really remarkable pictorial history, self-published. Um, the the book, it's available for sale for uh, $80 plus $15 postage. Um, it's very heavy. It is a, it is a very heavy <laughs> book. It's a big hardcover <laughs> yeah, book. Yeah, I, I almost strained my wrist <laughs> counting <laughs> across then. It's the size of Flora of Melbourne. Yep. It is. Yeah, yeah, it, right. is a, it is the size of Flora yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. What's the best thing to do? I mean, I've got an order form with, with some details. Uh, look, could, we, could we could actually... Pop that on the Facebook we page? We could put probably? that up on the Facebook page and then people could download it yeah, if they yeah, wanted yeah, to. Okay. Yeah, so we'll do that. Um, I might get Chloe to take a quick photo of it after yep. the show sure. and send it through to... Uh, oh, she can do I'll it now. I'll send it through right now. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's <laughs> fine. So it. we'll put that on up it. on our Facebook page. And, and listeners, don't forget to... Uh, if you are on Facebook, to log into the 3CR Gardening Show every Sunday morning because we do try and put any plants, photos of plants that we're going to be talking about up there. We're also on Instagram now, so uh, those photos will also be up on our Instagram page. Yep. Just log into 3CR Gardening Show yeah. and it's all there Absolutely. for you. So 
Wonderful. But highly recommend the the, the, the book. Um, it's uh, a phenomenal achievement, and mm. con- congratulations to mm. Ian. It's uh, he's, now, he's done a magnificent job. Proceeds going back to the gardens, John. Look, I think know? I think being self-published. I think what Ian is looking he's to do is to is cover his costs. Yeah, yes, yeah, that's exactly. right. Um, because it is 100% self self-published. Yes. So um, I, I, that's I, no mean feat. Oh, it's extraordinary. And yeah. you know, it was a reasonably sizable print run, and you know, Good. so he's wearing all of the uh, all, all of the, the financial risk. Yes. As it were, yeah. Yes. Um, but it's just testament to the passion that that people have for the places that mm. they that they, they they work. Well, I would imagine too that if any of our listeners are in the Geelong area, I would imagine it would also be on sale at Geelong Botanic Gardens. I would assume so. Pam. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would assume so. Yep. Um, but certainly, there's a, an order form that will pop onto the Facebook page, and if if people don't have access to Facebook. Um, they could potentially call in today mm. and we could provide the details. It would be nice, too, if they could put it in, um, say, the bookshops at Melbourne and Cranbourne Botanic Gardens That's right, as yeah. well. I've, I've ordered um, four, four copies, one for me, one for a mate, one for the Melbourne Gardens <laughs> Library and one for the Cranbourne Gardens Library. So, okay. Uh, there's four sales, Ian. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well done. No, I think it's ticking over quite well. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a terrific publication. And, and of course, um, you know, if you don't want to go to the expense of purchasing the book, you can request... Um, your local library to see if they will um, get it in because sure. I'm sure there'd be a lot of people who'd be interested in borrowing it. It'd be a lovely reference in the library. Oh, fantastic yeah. reference. Yeah. And mm. a fantastic historical reference for mm. Geelong Botanic Gardens yeah. going forward as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and it is going forward. There's a, a section from Annette Zealy, who's the current director of the, the, the gardens, which is you know, a, a, a thoughts for the future. Mm. So it's, it's certainly looking back to... It, it's almost a history of Geelong in the first instance. Oh, I can imagine um, that. Because, you know, the Geelong Botanic Gardens, it's the oldest regional botanic garden in Victoria, uh, in Australia, but the fourth oldest botanic garden in Australia... Oldest regional and... F- oldest regional botanic garden in Australia and fourth oldest botanic garden in Australia. Mm. So it went Sydney, Hobart... Uh, Sydney, Hobart, Melbourne, Geelong. Wow. In wow. terms of the, the, the chronology of botanic mm. gardens in, in Australia. So it's a really significant her- yeah. heritage landscape, yeah. um, which is very much engaged in its, in its future. I bet there's an entry about George Jones in there There's too. an entrance of George Jones. Yes. Yeah, yeah there's yes. some lovely accounts of, of, of George and, Fantastic. and, his, and his history. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Excellent. Thanks, well, Cam. There we go. No, no worries at all. Well, it is high time we invited our listeners to join us. If you have a gardening question this morning, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. Or this morning, we have Rosemary on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Rosemary, 94198377. We do have John Arnott, uh, Manager of Horticulture at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens, Chloe Foster and uh, Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill, so do give us a call. That number again, 94190155, or to speak to Rosemary, 94198377. Let's make a start with the plants, seeing as we've now got them up on Facebook, Jeremy. Okay. Well, maybe perhaps, uh, maybe we'll start with the hostas. Well, they're very, they're, very they're, striking uh, plants, yes, aren't uh, they? Uh, one or two of the new tissue-cultured uh, hostas that have been coming through the nursery trade. There's, uh, there's been a trickle of these over the last uh, 10, 15 years or so, but a couple of new ones uh, from the last little while. 
uh, Sarah's Sensation, so Hosta Sarah's Sensation. For anyone who doesn't know Hosta, these are very lush uh, plants that you, that you grow purely for their foliage effect and um, generally getting up well, some miniatures that are, well, just centimetres high all the way through to one or two pretty substantial plants which mm. get up to approaching a metre high and a couple of metres across. Uh, they're a little bit big for most gardens, but most of them are fit into a um, pot uh, around about um, 25, 30 centimetres internal diameter and they make fabulous pot plants and, and something like Sarah's Sensation would be ideal in, a, I'd say, about a 25 centimetre pot. Um, green leaves with a gold variegation running around each leaf and a sort of nice intermingling of those colours, which quite often happens with the hostas. Likewise, the other one um, um, is um, Ankulpa, and that um, has reverse variegation, so it's a green leaf with an internal variegation of uh, almost white. Um, now, these things come from Japan and China, that, uh, that, that part of the world, and... Uh, and in the wild, they're quite often associated with water. So you think they would need a heap of water. Uh, they grow on the edge of streams. But um, I find they're actually fairly drought tolerant. Really? I don't, don't understand why. But, okay. uh, but when we're watering the nursery, we can often skip the hostas. Uh, um, so um, anyway, they, they make fabulous pot plants. And certainly we ourselves have a collection of hostas uh, in one well, in two or three parts of the garden, but one section of the garden in particular, we've got about, dare I say, about 40 or so. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's oh, yeah. like a bit so of a collection of these, happening yeah, there, Yeah, one of, one of these things which, uh, which you can get a bit carried away with, I suppose, and certainly the <laughs> Americans... Uh, um, uh, in the in the Midwest are famous for their, their gardens full of hostas and there is a reason for that because um, hostas are caviar for snails. Oh, yes. And in the Midwest <laughs> of the United States, it gets so cold in the winter, the snails don't actually survive, so that it's a snail-free area. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> and so the hostas grow beautifully. <clears throat> so in our case, what we have to do is most probably grow them in, in pots and then somehow keep the snails off, which is not too difficult if you have them in a pot to wrapping a bit of copper around a pot or, yep. or some sort of plinth which is difficult for the snails to climb over does help so our best hostas there I say are in pots and that we have a few in the ground looking a bit ratty <laughs> a bit chewed <laughs> oh, wow. um, so they're, they're interesting plants they're, they're very shade tolerant um, and going back to these ones, the white variegated hosta and the golden variegated hosta, one of the oddities here is that the golden ones like a bit of sun, not too much, uh, just uh, two or three hours of morning sun or evening sun, but mainly shade. The white ones, on the other hand, are exactly the reverse and are very uh, sensitive to scorch and the best in constant shade, but right. bright shade. Yep. Um, and to illustrate how shade tolerant they are, if you've got, say, three pots of a particular variety, you could rotate them as a table arrangement. So they actually, you'd have a pot sitting inside on a table for a week or so at a time and then pop it out in the garden and bring one of the other pots in, and you could actually keep that going for the six months that they're up in leaf. Okay, okay. So, so, so they will lean to light? They do, yeah. They they, they head for light, and and we we have a bank of them all heading out towards the uh, people walking past. <laughs> um, 
but useful things. Uh, there's there's a there's a few that you'll see right through the nursery trade, and then there are one or two people with collections of them. And as I said, uh, we ourselves have a bit of a collection, and we will start to propagate those and make mm. those available mm. uh, for enthusiasts. Um, and there's one or two people you can check down with very substantial collections. And the Americans, when you look at the catalogues, have got thousands of them. Wow. <laughs> a bit like Iris and, uh, and uh, Daylilies and uh, one or two other groups of plants that a few people have cottoned onto and... and gone slightly overboard with. <laughs> <laughs> because they've got such a distinct variation, they really do light up a, a, a dark shady area, don't they? One of the loveliest things for a foliage effect, which is just so important in, mm. in any garden. Um, and the, uh, the other two plants are both grasses, and, uh, and I've been working with grasses for a long time, and I was sort of curious about the title of uh, John's uh, the book we've been discussing, right. uh, Kangaroo Grassland uh, to Botanic Gardens, and yeah, kangaroo grasses is what, another little... Um, Thing that I've been interested in for yeah. a long time. Yeah, I have to. And, and yeah, we've got a little patch of the blue uh, <coughs> oh, yes. kangaroo grass yep. uh, as you walk into Cloud Hill yep. uh, with a little bit of sculpture scattered around and, yep. and um, um, partly, uh, now what's the reason for that? I can get carried away for 25 minutes on this, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it actually grows on road verges in yeah. the Dandenongs. Yeah. And, what on earth is something which needs so much sun doing in the Dandenongs? And yes. It's kind of indicative that uh, uh, the, the traditional custodian land management and and uh, and how they were using fire to to create a mosaic and and uh, and using kangaroo grass and that that sort of uh, in fact the, the the clue of the book is in the the, the history of, of Victoria, if you like, is in the yeah. title of that book and yeah. that when when whites arrived, of course, though, everyone was talking about the landscape looking like a garden. Mm. That's and right. And that was the mosaic effect of, yes. of traditional custodian burning. Australia Felix. Yes. yes. And, the, and, the and right at the centre of that was kangaroo grass. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and, of course, uh, they, the, the, the gardens they were talking about were the eight, uh, well, 18th century English gardens, yeah. the gardens of Capability Brown, yeah. which mm. is the style adopted by all the botanic gardens. Mm. Uh, and so there's that, that, that thread running all the way through, mm. connecting up the kangaroo grass. And, and it's, it's really interesting. Like, we could talk about kangaroo grass for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. What, it, there was a, there was a, there's a theory. Uh, so Eastern Park was a, a grassy woodland prior to it being um, the botanic garden in Eastern Park, dominated by kangaroo grass in the understory. Yep. There were accounts in the early days, and I'm not sure that they're in this history here, of pulling the red hay off the, off the, um, out of the paddocks at, at, at east of um, Geelong. So that was kangaroo grass because it's got these beautiful mm. russety yes. florets. It's... The Eastern Park was mown every year from probably 1850-something to, 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 to date, yet it's still dominated by kangaroo grass. There's been no seed recruitment or little seed recruitment over the, over the past 150 years or so, yet the landscape is dominated by, by kangaroo grass. So there's been no new seedlings or few new seedlings. So what that's suggesting is that these kangaroo grass tussocks that are remaining in the Eastern Park landscape are 150 years old. Wow. Genetic, genetic material from 150 years because there's been no recruitment. 
No seed recruitment or little <laughs> seed recruitment. Because they've, mo- they've moaned it off before. So they can push out seed. Yes. That's amazing. No seeding, no seed recruitment. I have actually seen, I, I, I was farming in WA, and WA is one of the, uh, the southwest of Western Australia. It's one of the few places where you don't see much kangaroo grass. Right. In fact, it's quite unusual. Yeah. Uh, although there are patches of it, it's uh, it's it's of course a, more of a summer grain grass, yep. and, and of course Western Australia is a, uh, very strictly a Mediterranean climate. The mm-hmm. rain falls in June, July, and lots of it, and then the summer there's not a drop, uh, so it's not quite ideal for kangaroo grass. But um, I did find one little patch in the Chiffering Valley, okay. <laughs> north okay. of Perth, yep. um, back <laughs> in the 80s, and dare I say it dug a tiny bit up, <laughs> popped into the garden and grew quite well. And then that was in about 1985. And then um, after I, uh, when I was researching um, for the book we published on Cloud Hill, I was um, taking photographs of the farm and various other things and thought I'd go for a drive down the Chiffering Valley. I was, in fact, I was taking um, photographs of um, Leshenoltia, by Loba, which had finished flowering uh, where we were, but uh, was still flowering in the Chittering Valley, and drove along and spotted that same little patch of kangaroo grass. Now, the thing was about about three or four metres in diameter, and uh, most probably 20, 30 plants, and it didn't seem to have changed one bit from 1985 through to 2007. That's because it's it's likely to be the same clone. Yeah. The same individual. There you go. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, most probably I could still see the gap where I... <laughs> Which I shouldn't really talk about. But <laughs> and the, the natural distribution of kangaroo grass is it's it's quite remarkable. It goes all the way. It's in every state of Australia. Yeah. Yep. It goes through Papua New Guinea, through Southeast Asia, yes. into Southern Africa, where it's called red grass, but it's still Themata triangular. I have heard that it exactly. Uh, the distribution of kangaroo grass exactly delineates the the migration of of people of Homo sapiens on, from on. South Africa yep. <laughs> uh, to Australia. There's layers here. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and is that a coincidence? Mm. Mm. Wow. No, it's it's quite it was a mysterious a, thing. An important food crop. Yeah, yep. and, yeah. And very important, much so. They're grain. starting to work on producing it and mass producing to make flour. To make flour. Yeah. Flour yeah. 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 Mm. Okay, before we get to your grasses, Jeremy, <laughs> uh, we will go to a couple of callers. First up, we have uh, Brian out in Donvale. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, thanks a lot for your uh, help. I'm trying to raise seedlings, uh, such things as hollyhocks, uh, snapdragon. Look, they germinate all right, but then they just stay as they are, healthy, but just don't do anything for a few weeks. Uh, and, you know, when you go around to the nurseries and see their seedlings, you wonder, what can I do to, to encourage them to grow? So it was snapdragons, and what was the other one that you mentioned? Hollyhocks. Uh, Hollyhocks. There are others, vegetable seedlings as well. They're in seed-rated mix. Uh, they've got plenty of moisture and enough sunlight. Um, Have you transplanted them out of the seed-raising mix and into a fine potting mix? No, I haven't done that, no. They will just sit in the seed-raising mix because there's no fertiliser in seed-raising mix for them to keep growing. So they need a bit of oomph and a bit of nutrients. So to a, they're very small and delicate. Yep, it's it's really fiddly work. Um, they call it the very technical term is called dibbling, when you transfer um, young seedlings. So you prick them out. You prick yep. them out. So prick them out. Yep. With um, you could just use a fork or a knife, 
yeah. um, or, or the end of a grey lead pencil, I've used that before as well, and gently, very gently transfer them into a fine potting mix in or a, a, in a little In mix. a little tube. Yes, yep. yes, in yep. a little tube. Okay, thanks. And just one quick one. Look, I bought some tall snapdragons. They're about six inches high, but they've gone to flare. I'm guessing because they think it's hot. Uh, what should I do with those plants? Prune them back. Prune <laughs> off the flowers. Mm, right. And they will come again, yes, yeah? They should. Yeah. Snapdragons yep. are an annual? They, yeah. Yes, they are an annual. Yeah. yeah? Yeah. So you might get another flush of flowers. Yeah. But, it, but you, uh, um, short-lived perennial. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think with both of those, they're slightly out of season. So the trick is to just uh, keep them strong into the cool weather, and yes. they, they come up and flower in the spring. Yeah. Uh, but yes, prune them back at the moment and and uh, and fertilise, and just and set them up for the winter. Maybe putting some more seeds at the end of winter. Yeah. So that you get them going into spring okay. through summer. Thanks a lot for your help. So, so Jeremy, okay. that's reflecting back on the the old spring and autumn bedding that you that you do have two distinct yes. growing periods yeah. for for peak flowering periods. Yeah, it's, it's getting the timing right in the autumn is a bit tricky because yeah. the autumn seems to be warming up, and yeah. so the, it's confusing the plants a bit. Yep. And there's some species that just won't tolerate the heat of a summer or the yep. or the cool of a winter. Yep. 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 Mm. yep. Okay, next up we're going to go to David out at Wheeler's Hill. Good morning, David. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for answering this question. I hope you can. (laughs) We'll try. (laughs) It concerns my English box hedge. Uh, For the first time, I've got patches of about the size of a fist, clenched fist, of brown, completely dried off, uh, yellowish um, splodges through it. It This hedge runs for about 15 metres and it's it's just regularly appearing. Is this the dreaded problem they have in the UK with their box hedge over there? Right, yeah, their, their, their problem is a caterpillar. Is it? Yes. Right. I can't but I I've don't think that caterpillar has reached Australia. So and it, would present, it would present differently to that then? Yeah. Yes. So a couple of questions. How tall is the hedge? How old is the hedge? How wide is the, the hedge? hedge? The hedge would be about, um, I think, about 15 years old. It would be about... 30 centimetres wide and would be about 45 centimetres high. So well, est- well established. Oh, well established, absolutely. Yep. yep. And I have, I have been watering it, although perhaps not as regularly as I should have. Um, and is it dieback? Is it the, 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 yes. Could you just describe the... Completely dieback, I think. It's, um, it's, it's a, just a, a wheat-coloured, yellowy okay. sponge. Um, can I ask where the hedge is? Is it beside a driveway? The hedge is at the, in, in the old backyard. Some of it backyard. faces north, some of it faces east. Okay. Uh, the, we ourselves have a hedge uh, right by a driveway and we had a um, um, truck and a chipper oh, <laughs> that parked right beside this hedge and directing an exhaust uh, straight on the yes. patches of the hedge and that'll oh. kill the hedge quite yeah. happily yeah. Um, so we now we, we ended up with with half a dozen quite damaged sections of box hedge which we had yes. to um, chop right back to um, good uh, to, to strong bark to, to green bark that is oh, um, okay. and um, and exposing that bark to sunshine will stimulate the uh, uh, new buds and that those holes yes. will fill in. 
Okay. But, no, but it sounds to me as though you've got something else happening. Um, if it's uh, this was physical damage um, uh, that we could put our finger on. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so apart from that, it's really a case of... Uh, so cut it out? Well, cut it out, yes. Number one, you do have to cut it out. And then number two, um, you just, it's a case of TLC for the hedge, uh, mm. mulching around it. The plants, okay. the box is pretty drought tolerant. Mm. It's, it's, uh, grows as an understory underneath <laughs> oaks in, um, the Mediterranean. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, people call it English box. It's not an English plant at all. It comes from the Mediterranean and, and, uh, grows in pretty tough conditions. Sure. Um, so it's 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 pretty it's uh, something is happening here and I'm I'm not actually sure what. Do you, do you have a a dog? And I, I do, but she's she's gated. Out okay. Because I mean, a dog <laughs> habitually <laughs> weighing in the same spot could yeah, so could, th- could th- cause that, that, that is notoriously a problem. <laughs> 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 um, so it's not the hat. Look, I I suggest that Jeremy's got it right. Cut it back. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe some. Some TLC. Okay. Yep. I'll, I'll, give it, I'll give it more. Because it is my pride and joy in the back. And I, it's, 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 it's just behind a masonry, oh, a little masonry fence, which itself is about oh, half, six inches high. Okay. Um, mm, okay. Well, the encouraging thing is that they, you can cut them back and they will reshoot there. So they're re-sprouters. Uh, and they're strong re-sprouters. So okay. um, hopefully they re-sprout and re-sprout green. Yeah. Yes, just, thank just you very much. Okay, thanks. I'll do all that. And thanks for your help. Okay. Just, to, just to illustrate how you can cut back box, we, we cut back our parterres. Now, this is in a, uh, this is, uh, the, 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 these uh, box hedges that have simply overgrown themselves were um, becoming too tall. You've got to let hedges grow a little bit each mm. year. And box grows at a reasonable clip. It's uh, slowish, medium growing, but it really wants to be a tree six metres high. I mean, it, it's not, not something that wants to be kept at knee high. Um, and so a, a, a typical hedge does have to be renovated every now and again. Now, <laughs> we just bit the bullet and chopped our, our plants right back to stumps. Uh, no foliage at all. Yeah. Now, that... that uh, is problematical in some areas. They don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> They'll turn up their toes and die. So, uh, but we, uh, but we've done it before, so we're confident it would work. And every single plant uh, shot back again. Um, it depends on your conditions. We're, mm. we're on volcanic soil and fairly yeah. mild conditions. Mm. Uh, for most people, what I recommend is to chop back half the hedge and leave it looking a bit ridiculous. But you've got to expose some of that that bark right at the base of the plant to sunshine to at get some new growth happening. At the yeah. same time as the yep. plant still fires Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so you yeah. leave half the hedge there, so you might cut off the front half and leave the back half. It'll look ridiculous for about two years. <laughs> but then you cut off the back half and, and lo and behold, you've got your hedge back again and it's a nice and neat, very dense hedge. Isn't it interesting? If, if you were to say to a, a, the average gardener how tall would a English box get. It might go a metre? Yeah. Uh, two? Yeah. No, no. I've, I've <laughs> seen one growing in an old flower farm not far from us, which was up about five metres yeah, high. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. our box eucalypts were named box eucalypts because the timber of a box tree, our box gums, it was akin to the, to the English box. It, oh. was a, it was based on the characteristics of the timber. 
Okay, oh, yeah. wondered how they got there. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. it came from the English box. Mm. Actually, it's sort of one of the odd things about so many Australian trees, which are, <laughs> you know, she oaks. How does a casuarina mm. look like an oak? <laughs> but it's actually the wood. So, so many trees were given uh, common names after they've been yeah. chopped down. By yeah, exactly. The <laughs> they, yeah. Someone had been busy with an axe first yeah. and then made the connection. A, a red cedar is not a cedar. A cedar is a, you know, it's a gymnast firm. Yeah. And... White cedar, White cedar, uh, cedar etc., yep. etc., etc. Yes, on it goes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've had a query from the outside loan. Uh, jo lives in Frankfurt, Frankston, uh, and she lives in a street with flowering gums. They've, they haven't flowered this year. She's wondering if there's any reasons you can think of. Uh, just the variation of seasons. Mm. Yeah, I think um, some Weather conditions has a huge yeah. impact on you know, flowering times yep. and, and, and all that yep. of, of plants. Yeah, it's been pretty dry. Oh, it sure <coughs> still a, is. Still, yeah. yeah. I mean, we had a pretty good late spring, early summer, but gee, we haven't had much since. Mm. Sometimes the flowering gums, if they're, if they're quite young, they can take a few years to grow. I don't know whether she said how old they old might trees be. Or but new trees. It's yeah, like but I, I gather they've <coughs> flowered in previous previously. years. Yeah. They just haven't flowered this haven't year. Flowered this year. And yeah. I'd, I'd just noticed yesterday that there's some flowering gums that are still coming into flower. Okay. Um, so maybe it's been pushed back a little bit. Maybe. But I just yeah. think that's the, varia- the variability of, yep. of, of, of seasons. Some years you get really, really cracking. Yep. A- and mm-hmm. I, I suspect it's got something to do with water resources. Mm. Yep. And a strong flowering one year might cause a little bit of a mess the next year. Yes. It, they might throw a whole heap of energy into nut production the, mm. the, the, the following, the following, year. The following yep. year. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's just um, uh, variability yep. of seasons. Yep. Nature. Yep. Nature. Yep. Nature doing its thing. Yep. Okay. Um, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We are running through until 9.15, so if you want to jump on the phones and give us a call, we'd love to hear from you. That number to speak to John, Chloe or Jeremy, 94190155, or if you'd like to have a chat to Rosemary on the outside line, 94198377. Jeremy, back to your grasses. <laughs> We're yes, finally getting but, there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, well, two grasses... Uh, Canthus and Anthus uh, flamingo. Um, that's uh, the Miscanthus and Anthus uh, comes from China and Japan, um, but it does pretty well in Australia. I, I grew it in WA, um, one or two of the early varieties, and I was so uh, impressed by it. I, I actually managed to bring a few new ones in uh, during the 90s, and this is one well, mine, dare I say, flamingo. Um, it has it produces a glorious mound of foliage to about uh, a bit over a metre high, about 1.2 when it's really growing well. And um, late summer uh, into autumn, it, it produces flowers which are sort of a deep viscous crimson, uh, uh, bronze crimson, I guess. Mm. Uh, quite dramatic, uh, not quite a flamingo pink, but, no, no. Uh, but it's, a, it's a most probably the most colourful of all the... Um, miscanthus varieties that uh, you'll see in nurseries. There's about seven or eight of them nowadays. Okay. Um, and so uh, it's a good low maintenance plant. We use it at the back of our borders um, and and to divide one or two sections of the garden. The the um, the leaves. Um, it's actually herbaceous. It will dry off in the um, winter. But it still looks interesting right through, and so we leave the mounds of of um, of um, 
cured foliage through the winter and cut back right at the end of winter, which is quite an easy thing to do with a uh, brush cutter or or, uh, uh, secateurs. Um, And the foliage uh, comes up quite quickly in the spring and and so it fills its spot and... uh, and catches the wind. It's, mm. it's one of those very kinetic plants, which is and and the flowers especially. Um, so you have the amount of foliage and the overtopped by the flowers from late um, uh, summer right through, and looking interesting right through winter. So it, it pays its rent for all except for about three weeks of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, the the, the, the leaves up, are interesting because there's a there's a white central vein. Yeah, the midrib is, is pale. Yes. Yeah, it's the, lovely. Yeah, there's. Um, um, yeah, it's one or two variegated forms, which, mm. uh, which uh, um, there's one called Cosmopolitan, um, with a broader leaf and a very distinct mid-rib, uh, mid, uh, 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 white, um, and that one from memory has silvery pink flowers, okay. a little bit later than Flamingo. Uh, there's another one, um, they're mainly Sinensis varieties, but there's a, uh, there's a, there's another species from Taiwan called Olistagius, if I can, <laughs> if I can just get my head around it. Um, and there's a variety which you do see occasionally called Eileen Quinn, which is a form of the Taiwan, Taiwanese uh, miscanthus, which is much lower mm-hmm. and more of a biscuity pink. Okay. Um, there's another one called Giganteus, which is, uh, gets up to about three metres high, oh, very wow. upright yep. and uh, fairly windproof. Flowers in late autumn, silvery pink flowers. Um, so yeah, the miscanthus are right at the centre of this the the new way of gardening, I suppose, yeah, of yeah. using perennials and yeah. um, uh, late season flowers. Um, um, they, they were popularised in in America by people using bulbs for spring effect. Mm. So the bulbs were in amongst the grasses yeah. and taking advantage of those few weeks the grasses are down. And um, and then the grasses will come up and fill up the area, and and then uh, with perennials out uh, flowing around the grasses, they kind of provide the structure, don't they? The, 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 oh, yeah. the, 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 the bones, yeah, the, and they the flow. And so yeah. uh, James Van Sweden was planting them by the acre. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other one is the Japanese temple grass, Hacknoacloa macra aureola, and this is a much lower thing. So the uh, miscanthus, as I was saying, gets up to a metre, two metres, even three metres. But the Japanese temple grass um, is uh, more of a ground cover. It runs, but it's it's a uh, it's <laughs> very 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 slowly. <laughs> so it's quite a safe thing in the garden. But gradually spreads out uh, to form a mat of foliage. Um, this, the, the form I have to, here has a golden variegation running through the leaf and it only grows about um, 25 centimetres high. Um, mine's flowering at the moment, but you don't really grow it for its flowers. Um, I've never seen it seed. Um, it's reasonably shade tolerant, which okay. is unusual for grasses. Grasses generally need at least half sun to yes. full sun, um, but the Japanese temple grass... You will see in the gardens of Kyoto and growing underneath maples, um, it's normally green, and the green form has been introduced. So it's interesting where we had the variegated form before. We had the green form in nurseries in, in Victoria, um, 
and um, they, they, but it's the grain form you see in, in Japan largely and getting a little bit taller and there's also a golden form I've spotted in a nursery uh, okay. called all gold which is uh, well as the name suggests the leaves are entirely yellow so lacking chlorophyll and definitely needing a little bit of shade um, we're using it in uh, the two or three pools of the Hacknoa in a fairly shady corner of Cloud Hill as you walk in. Uh, we've got big beaches on our north boundary throwing shade across uh, the first area of the garden. And um, perversely, I've grown Melianthus major there, <laughs> which can, is quite shade tolerant. And we chop our two clumps back hard, and they're just looking stunning at the moment. So silvery blue um, leaves, the melianthus, and normally it grows, what, two, three metres high, and it's a gawky thug, but chop it back. And <laughs> gawky thug. <laughs> and, 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 and it becomes a mound of absolutely stunning foliage. And then with the... Um, Golden Japanese, uh, the, the variegated Japanese uh, temple grass underneath. The, the effect is just superb. Mm. And, uh, you know, occasionally you have an idea and it works. And <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> I, I'm just slightly startled that Melianthus tolerates so much shade, but it does get sun earlier in the season and it seems to persevere at uh, this time of the year and it's almost in constant shade. And, right. uh, the beaches drop their leaves and then it gets a bit of sun again. And yeah, nice. Phew, thank goodness for that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there's a few melianthus planted at Melbourne Zoo that are underneath a couple of elm trees. and In the shade. In the shade. Yeah, yeah. doing okay. Yeah, they yeah. well, come up every year. <laughs> there, there's a back. fabulous dwarf one, which uh, which is, well, people will see uh, gradually, but, but um, antique perennials have it. <laughs> but it's uh, they're, they're slowly, slowly building it up, but it only grows about um, 50 centimetres high. Uh, more uh, more with a grey green foliage, but oh, just Stunning. superb! Yeah. And that is a much better height for most mm. people. Yes. Um, the the ordinary melianthus is a little bit too big. Yep. Um, and what's the other oddity about it is, well, it grows in the garden and nothing touches it, nothing eats it. And, and as soon as you touch the foliage, you realise why, because the foliage smells of burnt rubber. Okay. And, 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 and uh, there's not an insect that's evolved yet. It can tolerate the taste of burnt, burnt rubber. rubber. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's a new website, uh, sort of online magazine called the, the Native Plant Project, and I've been asked to sort of contribute regular articles to that. And just on the Miscanthus, we've been um, the the next article I'm going to submit is the the substitute the Australian. It's called the analog plant. So for for the exotic Miscanthus, what's the Australian native equivalent? Or for the camellia, what's Excellent. the native? This and, is one of my favourite things to it, do. It's <laughs> fun. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it it's really is. okay, John. <laughs> so, so what is the equivalent? <laughs> so there's a thing called dryopoa dives, which is called the giant mountain grass, which is a thing that occurs in sort of wet forests. Uh, through the central highlands, um, and it is very, very similar. I mean, it, 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 you, 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 they're structurally quite similar. They, they, um, they look quite similar. I mean, they're very, very different grasses. Um, but it's, it's been fun this this exercise of, of looking at a, uh, uh, an exotic thing and then thinking about the, what the native equivalent might be. It's a, it's a lot of fun. I don't think uh, so. A variegated hostel. I can't. Not, nothing is immediately coming. <laughs> no. to, nothing is immediately no. coming to mind. <laughs> oh, there's some fabulous Australian grasses. Oh, yeah. that, that's for sure. And, uh, and, and I suppose just and the other thing is I've mentioned the hackney clover. I've, I've never seen it seed. Uh, I've, I've, it, it, um, 
it needs Japanese conditions before it will see. Before it will the, see. Yeah, the miscanthus, we, um, now it, it's reasonably well behaved where we are. It's reasonably well behaved in Western Australia where I was growing up, very hot, dry area uh, in the summer. Um, on the other hand, I suspect uh, northern New South Wales, uh, I, I, I tell people no, grow something else. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I think it's I think that's, that's it getting a bit too close to its natural conditions. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. that's that's the thing about the uh, could get away. well, most most garden plants, but it, but grasses in particular, which want to produce mm. a lot of seed and yeah. quite often have little parachutes and send their seed a long way. Mm. You do have to think about what's uh, what's safe in your area, yep. and and using native grasses <laughs> is a, yeah. an obvious uh, way to go. Look, if, even uh, you know local native grasses have got the capacity to, to uh, germinate and, and mm. be weedy in, in a garden situation. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, when I was farming in WA, I, 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 someone did send me a collection of grasses from the eastern states. Yeah. There were about 15 of them. I reckon half of them were seeding almost yeah. instantly. <laughs> and, I, and none of them were native to our particular area. Yeah. Uh, I must admit, I... I Dug them all up and burnt them, along with another grass, uh, Penicetum velosum, which oh, people yeah. will see at Cloud Hill. But by golly, that that is um, very problematical. It's, it has potential to become quite very invasive over a substantial area of the southern Australia, mm. and yet you'll see it growing at Sissinghurst, for instance, in their borders. It's a f- fabulous-looking grass. Um, but it illustrates that thing that we do have to think hard about what we grow in our gardens. Oh, we certainly Watch do. them carefully. Yes, yep. definitely. Yep, yep, for sure. Okay, let's go to a couple of callers. First up, we have Sonia out in Broadmeadows. Good morning, Sonia. Good morning, and uh, thank you very much for taking my query. Shall I ask it? Yes, go Please. ahead. Um, it's regarding passion fruit. Um, I have two passion fruit uh, bushes. Uh, last year, the graft took over. And it grew from the root, not from the actual... Right. Yep. yep. And I cleared that all up. And just before Christmas, I got quite a few flowers, and I thought it was going very well. Um, and then it grew, the, the greenery grew prolifically, mm-hmm. and I've got no more fruit at all. So I, I want to know, it's going wild. I can't, what do I do? do I pr- can I prune it all back? And why am I overfeeding it or... Did you it, it, possibly? Did you get much flowering at the beginning? Yep. Uh, before Christmas, before the prolific growth, uh, there were quite, uh, what I thought was nice development of flowers, and I got about twelve passion fruit off them. Okay, Look, there's a couple of things. Sometimes passion fruits will pr- produce a lot of flowers, but there's no invertebrate pollinators around to pollinate them, yes. so it can be a lack of pollination that that causes the lack of fruit set. Um, but they can do what they can also do what yours is doing and put on a lot of growth at the expense of flowers. So it could be that um, it's the conditions that you have, or you might be over fertilising. Yes, a little I'm bit. wondering yeah. if you're too just much. giving it too much nitrogen. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Ah. Might, so maybe drop that back. Right. Um, in terms, of, you, you can cut, you can clip or lightly prune passion fruit, but I, I don't think I'd go too hard. Well, I have to do something because it's taking over the fajara tree. It's going next door and it's coming over my rotary um, clothesline. You could probably, the, you could the probably clip The only other thing I'm querying <laughs> is whether you're quite sure that you haven't got more of the uh, understock growth. Absolutely. I can tell quite clearly the distinction. Good. Oh, good. So okay, green, so good, we green can eliminate sh- that. Green and shiny. Yes, green and shiny. Yeah, 
I'd also try and maybe give it a bit of potash. Yeah. Potash? Yep, yep. that yep. will encourage more flowering and fruiting. Yep. W- would it still fruit? I mean, is it still fruiting time? Would it still flower? Or is that past till next year? Uh, sure. so, most probably next year. Well, probably yeah. next yeah. year, I'd say. But, I'd um, yes, Particul- springtime. Particularly if you're going to give it a clip. Yeah, so if I gave it a, a clip now, yep. um, especially the ones that are obstructive, yep. uh, and um, and then uh, what's the good of, would I put potash now or just wait? And, well, what, what could be the order of things I could do? I do have to clip it back yeah, cl- to cl- a degree. Clip and feed, um, and, and maybe it's repeat applications of a small amount of potash. In what, t- what time of the year? Oh, look, I think you'd be. I'd probably wait until the the autumn rains came through until you clipped it back. I think. Um, All right. Well, I'll, I'll take uh, take the ones that are really creating a nuisance. Yep. And yep. clip them off, and then a little bit more clipping back in autumn. Yep. And then the potash about when? Oh, early spring. Mm. Spring. Yep. yep. Yes. And um, I'm, I'm using a, a sort of organic fertiliser, so I'll, I'll stop doing that. Stop doing I? that. Yes, definitely stop doing that. Yep. It's and, and we're watering it, well, and my next-door neighbour uh, accidentally waters it as well. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I, I go easy on the water? Or I, I, I'd say so. If that it, would if probably it, explain a lot, of the, a lot of the large amounts of leaf growth as yeah, well, if it, it's getting a lot of water. It sounds yes. like it's in too good a paddock. Yes. 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 Yes, I think you're right. I, I didn't realise uh, he, he's a very good gardener, <laughs> his garden, and he likes to, to uh, hose down his um, concrete. So, oh, right. so you're getting a bit of runoff off the concrete. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so therefore, I'll, I'll keep that what's obnoxious, and and then in autumn I'll do a little bit more thinning, perhaps. Yeah, I would. Yep. Yes, yes. A- yep. And then in spring I'd put some potash, and I'll ease off on the fertilizer and and the watering, unless I see the leaves looking sick. That's right. Po- yep, possibly, that's right. Po- possibly even stop the the general fertilizer for a, a, a little while mm. and yes. sl- slow it all down. Okay. And now, could I ask one just mundane question? Sure. Um, I noticed that tomatoes are very dear in the in the shops, and I thought most of them were hydroponic things, so oh. they wouldn't be affected by the weather. Why are our tomatoes in short supply and so expensive? Oh. Hydroponics is a really expensive way to grow plants. <laughs> yeah, right. You're using nutrients that come in insoluble liquid form, and um, keeping Und- a greenhouse running is glass. very, very expensive yeah. as well, um, and they require a lot of... They do require a lot of maintenance by the people that look after them and grow them too. So um, it's not necessarily an easier way to um, or a cheaper way to, to grow plants hydroponically or mm. whether they are grown in a glass house or not. So why are they in short supply and they're $9 a kilo? I don't, don't know. know. It, 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 inevitably it will be linked with the supply demand um, and it's probably been a really, because of the, Heat and dry, it's probably been a really tough year for tomatoes. It has been a tough growers. year for tomatoes. You could also yeah. be going to the wrong fruit shop, Sonia. <laughs> I haven't paid $9 a kilo for tomatoes all year, all season, I mean. <laughs> yes, well, uh, I go to Aldi's. Well, shop around. Shop around, but it, but it has been a very difficult season for for farmers for the it last has, uh, yeah. two Water months for, for gardeners and, and for farmers. Yeah. Yes. And um, so I, I, I would imagine that it's affecting a lot of uh, 
a lot of things going through the veggie markets. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure whether this is just anecdotal or my perception, but the the quality of tomatoes seems to be down a little bit, like really thick, waxy mm. cuticles. Yes, and yes. Yep. You know, I think it's just been a tough year. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for your information. It's helpful as always. Okay. Bye. And uh, next up we have our good friend Alex in Beaconsfield. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Pam. And I got a bit excited about your conversation about Mally Eucalypts. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, some time ago I noticed some growing on the Calder Freeway, probably East Keeler, somewhere like that. Yeah, oh, yeah. yes. So going along there at 80 kilometres an hour, you could see these lovely small compact trees yep. covered in beautiful buds. Wasn't quite sure what they were, but I had them checked up and found that it was Eucalyptus dolichlorinca. Oh, yeah. And that's, well, that's a hopeless Latin name, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it really, I thought, well, if it's growing so well there and gets absolutely no attention, it should do well in my nature strip. Well, I think nature strip is an oxymoron. They're usually full of weeds. That's right. We put two in, and they are doing really well at Beaconsfield. Fantastic. Excellent. And uh, I've since seen one or a couple down on the Geelong Freeway down near Lara. Yep. Yep. So, again, very tough conditions, and and, uh, they seem to be doing well. And there's an absolute beauty in the Melbourne, Melbourne Botanic Gardens. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So yep. Uh, I just, I'm excited about it because I am aware that some eucalypts are so large that they should never be planted in private gardens. Mm. We've got a, a swamp mahogany as a street tree oh, there. Right. Oh, wow. oh, goodness. It's just ridiculous. Oh, that's crazy. So, uh, yeah, how, I think... Uh, how old do you reckon the mahogany is? Because there was some really silly planting that was happening in the... Yeah, well, the, uh, this, this is an absolutely mature one. Yeah. And it's it's uh, probably 40 years that it would have been there, and I think the people who planted that were rat bags. But then opposite that in a private garden is... It's not a eucalypt, but it's still a gum tree... And got for a Blakey eye, and if you read about it, it says, "Oh, yeah, planted in a in a park or a large garden." Yeah. Yes. So uh, yeah, I think we've got a lot to learn about these attractive little mallies, and I'm looking forward to seeing more yep. selected and planted. Alex, you'll be pleased to know that uh, on the um, exhibition in Bankment, so in behind the um, the Stage One display gardens. Yep. Um, we're going to be planting, I think, about 10 or 12 different um, uh, groups of mallees along that uh, along that embankment. Oh, good. And, and that's and a It's almost a perfect area for these things, though. Yeah. And Dolly Karinka is in the mix. So we're, we're about to plant a, uh, a, a little stand of Dolly Karinka amongst a whole bunch of those other smaller ornamental um, mallee eucalypts. So there'll be a little collection along. Oh, that's marvellous. I look forward to seeing them. But that tree at Melton, and, and that eucalypt collection at the Melton Gardens, is it's something else. Mm. But the, oh. the Dolichorinca, I agree, Alex, that, that's got to be 
one of the best dolichorincas outside of its natural range. For people that um, are getting confused with us saying the word dolichorinca, its common name is the fuchsia gum. Thanks. And it's very closely related to eucalyptus forestiana. forestiana. They used to be the same, but they got split up. Dolichorinca has slightly longer um, flowers on it. Too. Okay. And maybe a heavier canopy. Yes. Yeah. And a, yeah you're right. Yep. Um, they're both actually forest. Forestiana is a bit more available in mm-hmm. nurseries than Dolichorinca, but you can get Melton Botanic Gardens do sell them when they have plant sales. Sure. Um, and they they are grown by a few different nurseries, so they, it it would be. Um, available for, for people to buy if they wanted to. But its common name is the fuchsia gum. Fuchsia gum. Which might be a bit easier. Which is, but say. it's one of two fuchsia gums. Yes, yeah. one of two fuchsia gums. <laughs> <laughs> and they do, like, they are quite similar. Like the fruit, the flowers are quite similar to yeah. a fuchsia. They, they, they're drooping. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They're beautiful. And yeah, they're, you know, long flowers. Mm. Yeah, they're really cool. Really cool. Yeah, no, they're lovely. Russell Luck has a lot to do with that southern planting. He, he really does, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he's, uh, in fact, they're all, it's more of Russell's favourite. Russell would probably have mellow eucalypts in just about every planting precinct yes. in the Australian garden. Yes, he would. So we have to temper that enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Alex. Oh, isn't it wonderful to have young people who can get these answers? <laughs> it's also wonderful to have the internet at your fingertips too, Alex. <laughs> Alex, I tried to jump on, but I couldn't spell Dolakarinka. So <laughs> <laughs> it's Sunday morning. Uh, uh, so it's one of those glorious Latin names. It's, a, it's, a, it's a herbaceous peony species, uh, Molisuichia, yeah. uh, which is uh, infamous for its name as well. And uh, but it, but it's a beautiful thing, and I I've actually seen it growing. There's a, someone up in the Monbog had a bit of a growing and produces these lovely flowers, pale yellows, sort of a silvery pale yellow flower, beautiful foliage, lots of lots of things happening in this beautiful dissected uh, lobed leaf as well. And, uh, but this this clunker of a name, uh, and of course it's it's grown a lot in parts of the world where it, where it will grow and, and generally called Molly the Witch of course. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. I think it's really we, we think the binomial so the, the Latin with, with the double barrel Latin name is tricky but prior to Linnaeus um, the, the Latin was, Latin terms were described a, a, a plant might have 10 or 15 Latin names yeah. associated with it so mm, a gladioli might it. be Gladioli, so so with a, a, a bent hook which will have a, a, a Latin name, with a, a, a weeping habit that'll have an, a Latin name, with grey foliage that'll have a Latin name. So we're kind of lucky that we that we narrowed it down to two. Hooray for Linnaeus! Okay then, Alex. Thanks very much. Okay, You're wonderful Alex. people. River Bye. Alex, good on you, mate. Ah, now we have had a query on the outside line. Does anyone know the botanical name for bluebeard? It's a deciduous bush with blue flowers in summer. Blue, Thank goodness um, we have cari- the internet. Caryopteris? Yes. Oh, Caryopteris. Yep. Okay. C-A-R-Y-O-P-T-E-R-I-S. And Caryopteris, it's a familiar name. What is it? Um, it's a little subshrub, um, pretty tough. North American thing. 
I think. I think no. North America. Uh, this, no. Well, this one, East Asia. East Asia, right. Okay. Although there's a sort of connection between the, that, the, the North America and, and Asia. There's right. Quite often you get species of things that are around both and they're, they're quite similar. Yeah. You know, the tulip, tulip tree, there's two of them, one in China, one in America, yeah. there, mm. and it goes on and on. Yeah. Um, but the Caryopteris, it's a, yeah, flowering at the moment. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, one or two with variegated foliage, with golden okay. variegated foliage and silver variegated foliage, which uh, and because of the um, uh, the texture of the leaves. Now, variegation can be uh, awful <laughs> and can be quite effective. Yes, right. I have uh, been very professional and very polite. But in this case, uh, it does work quite well with this plant and flowering and, and these um, blue flowers, uh, jacaranda blue. So yeah. It's, uh, okay. yeah, it's an interesting mauve, grey mauve blue. Yeah, right. Um, and flowering right at the end of the season uh, in, and into the autumn. Mm. Quite good things. And, um, and they came through, for us, they came through this season quite well. Okay. They're salvia-like. Yeah, they're, yep. in, the mint, they're in the yeah. salvia family, yeah. the Lamiaceae, mm. so yeah. mint, basil, salvias. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, look like great garden plants. Mm. Yeah. 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 Okay, there good we go. Good plants. Yep. Chloe, you and John wanted to talk a bit, and you had sort of already mentioned it a little bit in passing, about collecting seed yeah, in the wild. We didn't bring in many plants today because no. um, we just looked at some photos and thought, let's talk about outside of what happens in this studio. Okay. <laughs> um, Escape the walls. Yeah. One of the, one of the main part aims of Botanic Gardens is to preserve plants, to preserve wild plants. Mm, yep. Um, and by doing that, you get to go out in the bush and just collect seed. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the one of the real joys is going on a, a an expedition or a field trip into the wild and doing some collecting. Your kangaroo grass from WA, that's indelible. That's so there's an association between that species and that site, and that's there forever. Yeah, mm. you know, it's the, it's contextual. Mm. Yep. So there's a really lovely context to going into the wild, collecting something. Nurturing it, bring it, bring it back, propagating it, growing it on, um, in in a in the botanic garden sense, growing it on, putting a label on it, and displaying it. So there's a it, it, and it, there's arguably more value for a, a plant species which has got that wild. It's called provenance. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and something that was collected from the wild um, has got more scientific conservation genetic value genetic preservation preservation values yeah. yes. and then something that could have come from somewhere else or we're not we're not really sure what its physical origin was yes um, or something that was made by humans or something that was made Whereas by humans exactly yeah, yeah. Um, pre- preserving something that was you know made by nature yeah yep yep um, and especially with you know population growth yep. and urban development you know we are encroaching on nature as well and it's Absolutely. really important for um, botanic gardens to conserve, try to conserve these species. Mm. Uh, just uh, nothing to do with the Australian flora or any of the wild collecting that we, that we, that we can talk about, but um, just going back to the Geelong Botanic Gardens, Geelong Botanic Gardens Chilean, um, Chilean wine palm um, had provenance information. Uh, so that was collected in Raddenbury's Fernery in the late 1800s. Uh, and, there was, and it was collected from wild source, from, from Chile. Uh, subsequently, the Chilean wine palm has become quite threatened because it produces this sap, which makes a really lovely fermented wine, so it was over-harvested. Okay. 
um, and started to disappear from great tracts of, of land in, in Chile. There was a, a, a recovery program for the Chilean wine palm and a call out to botanic gardens for, for collections uh, and we were able to trace back the origin of the, the Chilean wine palm and it was collected from a region where in Chile where it completely disappeared. Wow. Um, so its genetic value, because we knew where it came from, for, for this reintroduction recovery program for the Chilean wine palm in Chile, mm-hmm. there's, there's a little bit of the Geelong Botanic Garden in that, in that project. Have they sent seeds, seeds from there back, yeah. back to Chile yep. so that they could revegetate? Yep. That's another really important thing as well. If you exactly. do have these rare species, yes. you can... Spread the seed again that's and, right. and yeah, 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 fix what you. So that's a really interesting connection back yeah. to the Geelong Botanic Gardens and and you know the the, the value of, of of knowing of, of wild collecting, documenting where it's come from, um, and it's just a lot of fun. Documenting is really important too because yeah. there's so there's a lot of historical records and Australia's virtual herbarium and um, the Atlas of Living Australia have all the records of collecting of plants and animals. Um, but the, a lot of the records are really old and really patchy. So now it's really important for us to keep wild collecting and keep yep. um, documenting where we have seen species so that um, scientists can use this information to look at the range of species and how climate change is affecting yep. um, uh, species range, whether they're expanding because of climate change or whether they're contracting. Whether contracting. Yep. Um, and it, I mean... It, on a, on a side note, when it, when you think when you're looking at field guides as well, you know a lot of them will have distribution maps in them, but those are outdated now as well. We mm. need people to be collecting current data. Current data, yep. you know, it's mm. it's 2019. The year 2000 was almost 20 years ago, yeah. um, and a lot of these books and a lot of these um, uh, collections were collected in the in the 1900s. Yep early, late, whatever. Yep. So we need to keep, you know, we need to keep collecting and documenting mm. where we mm. see these species. Mm. Yeah, for sure. On the Facebook page, there's uh, um, some of the things that Chloe c- collected with others from the Botanic Garden, Cranbourne. And one of them is this gorgeous Poltonia. And <laughs> Chloe brought it in twig. this morning. <laughs> We're kinesthetic people. We need to hold a plant when <laughs> we're talking about it. <laughs> it's called Poltonia subalpina, and it, it occurs on certainly on Mount William. But is it, is it just Mount William or a few of the peaks? It's only Mount William. Only Mount William. Yep. Okay. So, so we went up to Mount William and the Grampians and were searching for Poltonia subalpina and another thing called um, Eucalyptus porciflora subspecies parvi fructa. So they only occur, those two things only occur at the top of Mount William. Um, we found the parvi fructa relatively easily because it's a big tree okay. and, and sort of dominant, a snow gum. Yeah. And it's the dominant tree at, at, a, at a certain location. On, 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 But we walked around looking for this for ages. So long. <laughs> we couldn't find it. We thought, oh, my goodness, the plant's extinct. Yeah, we right. were really worried. We, oh. But we were going off... An old fo- a photo that I had from a couple of years before, and a, a line drawing in a in a book. In a this book. is why these things need to be updated. That's right. And we just we thought, oh, we can't find it. Yep. Doesn't look anything like the photo that we had. Nothing. No. We found some shrubs not Pol- in flower. Poltonia type things that, that looked, looked like right. a pea plant. We thought, oh, we'll just take the material and <laughs> propagated it. Two weeks later, we, this propagated material popped out bright pink flowers. <laughs> oh. And this plant that we collected was everywhere over Mount William. Yeah. <laughs> plant nerds just got a little bit too intense into the details. Yeah. Like the, we we saw it everywhere essentially, yeah. and we didn't think we'd seen it at all. Yeah. 
It was a bit ridiculous. It was a bit ridiculous. It's a bit embarrassing, actually. But it, but, the, <laughs> <laughs> but it was confirmed when the as a cutting had pushed out these pink flowers. It right. is the most beautiful pink yep. pea flower. Okay. And the the flowers you can see in the photo, Pam. The flower pops straight up. Oh wow! It's ter- terminal flowering, they call it, at the yes. end of the at the end of the um, branch or stalk. Yep. And it's a a massive um, cluster of, of beautiful pink flowers. It's one of my favourite plants ever. I just love it. It's a really cool story as well. In the entire world, it mm-hmm. only grows on Mount William in the Grampians. Wow. As, yeah. as, as this snow gum. Yeah. Uh, and the, yep. this, this snow gum, it's the smallest. So I think there's seven subspecies of eucalyptus porciflora. There's six. Six species, thank you. Russell told me last right. time. So these these six species. Uh, and, you know, once upon a time, they all been, would have been called eucalyptus porciflora. Yes. But when you look at the characteristics, they're actually, you know, there's variances and differences and to the point where they've got their own subspecific status. Mm. Uh, and this particular tree, gorgeous little thing, it's the smallest of all the, the snow gums, beautiful white trunked, lignotuberous, so mallee form. Okay. Mm. Um, and uh, those plants that we collected seed and those, in fact, over the last, there's another, and we should put a shout out to Matt Henderson, yes. um, who's another horticulturist at the Cranbourne Gardens. Matt and Russ and Chloe, in their own time, have been all over the subalps of Australia trying to collect the majority of our subalpine eucalypts. Um, now, this is this passion thing coming, coming through. But Matt, over the last 18 months or so, has collected all of the subspecies of eucalyptus porciflora. Wow. From, from across the range, and it's all been documented with herbarium specimens. Fantastic. It, it is great. But yep. Parvifructa, sub, the subspecies at Mount William, it's the smallest of all the uh, snow gums. Right. And a, and a gorgeous thing. Yep. A, a really gorgeous thing. Yep. In fact, we had a lovely time. Most of the horticulture team on a, on a, took a long weekend uh, and went down to the Grampians mm. in our own time and collected quite... quite there was about 80 different species yeah. of plants we got on that trip. Yeah, yeah. Over, over three days. Yep. We, we were still up at 10, 30, 11 o'clock, pr- you know, um, processing the... the um, the herbarium vouchers. <laughs> so the thing to note is not you can't just go into a national park and start ripping out plants. No. We have we have a for permit. scientific purposes yeah. we have a permit for it. Yeah. And yes, part of that have permit, have permit you have yeah. to have a permit. And yeah. part of that permit is um, collecting plant material for you to grow and 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 use. And the other um, um, part, rule, I suppose, is you have to collect Protocol. a specimen for the herbarium yep. for yes. for scientific that's purposes. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, so we that's what we're up late doing, yeah. you know, yeah. pressing everything, putting them in, you know, cardboard paper, putting them into a plant press. Yep. It was and very tiring, but it was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's those stories from the collection that, that I, I, I put a, I collected a Eupermatia, Lorena, which is a lovely um, rainforest plant from East Gippsland. This is a long time ago. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I knew that it was in a little rainforest patch near Point Hicks. Got up, got up really, really early, drove from Melbourne, got to the site, um, collected for a couple of hours, but I'd, I had my lights on and I left my lights on and flattened the battery. Oh, no. Now, this is 45 kilometres off the Prince's Highway. Oh. Um, and uh, I eventually got the car going by push starting it in reverse because it was a manual. <laughs> but it took me two or three hours to, of, of multiple attempts to try and... Um, kick-start the, the, the car, and I got it going. 
Um, whenever I smell Yupamatial Arena, mm-hmm. I'm oh. back on that bloody road. <laughs> <laughs> Cursing the fact that I was an idiot and didn't turn oh, the lights off. No. You know, it's that smell association, yes, but it's also a species yes. association yes, now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, well, this, you know, this, yeah. this whole story is also reminding me of, of the fabulous <coughs> work being done with, with some of our Australian orchids, of course. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. With Nushka, Rita, yes, and, and, and others. Yeah. So Nushka's, um, she's got uh, federal fund, well, funding from a range of sources, but she's focusing on threatened species, uh, federally threatened species, so things that have got uh, endangered conservation status across their range. She's um, propagating them through really, really specialist techniques uh, and then having material which is available for translocation back into some secure sites. Mm. So... uh, Probably one of Australia's most significant conservation projects, which is kind of happening in the background down at the Cranbourne Gardens. Yes, mm. yes. Uh, but a really significant contribution which has been made to the conservation of, oh, of, of a, a range of yeah. terrestrial orchids. Yeah. And once again, they are actually, um, many of those specimens are actually then being taken back into the wild. Back into mm. the wild, yes. Yeah. And that's the point of the exercise, actually. Exactly. It's, it's not just a hold rare plants in pots on a bench yes. in a botanic garden in Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, the aim is that those, those plants are put back into the wild and hopefully can persist as self-sustaining populations. Mm, mm. It's a terrific program. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and I, should, I should mention too, we should also um, um, thank the Australasian Native Orchid Society yep. group because many of their members are volunteers in, in doing this replanting and um, they really are it's, it's community involved. It's, it, it's being facilitated through the RPGV yep um, but would not be possible without the support of the Australian Native Orchid Society yep and, uh, you know, a range of volunteers, really committed, passionate, skillful, mm. knowledgeable volunteers. Yep, yeah, It's definitely. a great program. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Have you got any Darwinias in your collection? Oh, you, you, surely you must have. Bits and bobs. Mm. Yeah, 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 bits and bobs. Yeah, it's on, on where we were farming at a place called Magumba. Uh, the corner of our place was where they discovered the Magumba Bell. Okay, <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So Darwinia, Carnia. And we've been farming there for about 12 years. We bought this property and we've been farming there for quite a few years until some botanists arrived one day and started hunting around on this one little patch of native bush uh, on top of a hill. And, Sandy Rice. And, 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 yeah, and, 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 and saying, well, I'm trying to figure out whether or not there are any of these plants left. And we'd never heard of it. Right. Or rather, I had heard of it, but I th- thought of, uh, it was somewhere else altogether. Right. Um, so we'd been, <laughs> dare I say, running sheep through this place with no idea. And, of course... No plants. Yeah. Um, so I started checking on this and discovered, yes, it's one of the Darwinias. Now, anything with Darwin in its name, it's, it's, it's got to be significant. It's a stunning little plant. And it did actually exist. The, uh, the, the collection, uh, some material had been taken from one plant okay. uh, about 20 years earlier. Yeah, and so it was actually available in nurseries <laughs> around Perth. Right. Beautiful thing. But, in effect, extinct in the wild. And the other problem is it's self-infertile, and so the plants in the nurseries are not producing seed. Seed. Mm. Yeah. So, so, we, so for five, six years, uh, every spring we go hunting around for Darwinias. We, we sort of fenced off an area and, oh, and, and, and to see if we could get any seed sitting in the uh, soil that would would uh, germinate, but we were also bothered by wingless grasshoppers at the time, which were eating every germinating plant. So we just never saw anything. 
Anyway, so it's, it's a happy ending to the story because they discovered the little population of them in the uh, uh, several kilometres away on a on a friend's property. Right. So, so okay. it's back into life again. The old Darwinia Carnegie. Oh, that's fantastic. So, oh, but that's but apparently there was only ever about twenty or so plants discovered right. in one population, yep. and all growing within a few hundred metres, and that was it. It's it's interesting, and that's called inherent rarity. Mm. That there's that there's some things that are we're just they're just naturally. Restricted to tiny mm. little areas, yeah. um, and you know, so if there's pressures on that single population or a small number of populations, the whole thing's in trouble. Mm. Several um, hundred sheep. Yeah, said, yeah that's right. That's and right. lots of ring, wingless grasshoppers, which were a huge problem yeah. in, in uh, back in the 80s and 90s in yeah. the WA. Another another plant that would, I hope's on the Facebook page is a, a daisy called Oleria panosus subspecies cardiophylla. Now it. It, it, it's, it's rare. It's down to you know, 10 or 15 populations across its range, but presumably it's, uh, it's fragmented across its range. So it, it, it occurs down at Point Addis. Uh, there's, a, there's a population at Wedderburn. Uh, there's a population at the Brisbane Ranges. And the, Point Addis is near Anglesey. Near Anglesey, yes. yeah. And the assumption was that it was one continuous or connected population 150 years ago or so, and it's now restricted to mm. isolated populations. Um, so that's got a conservation status of rare um, because there's a number of different populations. So one fell out, the, the thing's probably going to still hang on somewhere. But these single isolated populations, if they're under threat, they're in a lot of trouble. Yep. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay. Uh, we have had a query from the outside line. Um, Thelma would like to buy but can't find um, lithops seeds. Lithops. Lithops. As in st- the living rocks, the living yeah. stones, living stones. Yes, yeah. I I thought maybe collectors' corner. Collectors' corner. Yep. Down at Garden World, yep. I think that's probably your best. Even bet. at Mifkus this week as well. Well, I was going to say it's a, it's a right. timely reminder to yep. listeners that that Mifkus Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show starts this coming Wednesday, right. runs through until Sunday, and it includes a, a twilight um, session on the Friday night. But Collector's Corner will be there, I presume, again, and so she might very well um, be able to get them from there. Sure. And if she's down Lara Way, Roy Rama plants yes. on the, on the yes. Princess Ward, almost certainly. Yes, they have a huge collection down succulents, there. succulents, yeah. Yes. Yep. Yes, so that would be another place to try. I- interesting little things, aren't they, those lithops? <laughs> oh, they yeah. are. They just sit there almost I'm inanimate. For yeah. Succulent's not my thing, but when they look like that, it's really cool. Like, <laughs> you think, like, where is that growing in the wild as well? Probably in between a lot of rocks. Probably. You yeah. know, that's it's grown like that, to, you know, as a defence mechanism. Yeah. Be, be cryptic. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to see that one in the wild. Yeah, I would too. That would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I have a correction to make, Pam. Okay. We made a claim before that Pultanea subalpina only grew on Mount William. Yep. Roger Elliott just emailed me. Yep. <laughs> right. He's forever fact-checking for us. So thank, thank you, Roger. It also occurs on Mount Rosia in the Grampians as well, but that's sort of a stretch distribution. Mount Rosia is in the north and Mount William is in the south. Sure. So, two um, peaks. Two peaks. Two peaks. Yeah, yep. two peaks. Okay. Another, just quickly on Mount William as well, has some really um, rare flora on it. There's... Um, Prostanthra lassiantha variety subcoriacea, which is a type of mint bush, um, grows on Mount William. Yeah. There's also a species of Banksia called Banksia saxicola right. that only grows on Mount William and Mount Oberon down at Wilson's Promontory. Now there's a distribution. How did that happen? Wow. I mean, do we need to do the gen- you know do we need to do the genetics on it to see if they are related? The and they may have done that. Yeah. The genetics on them and said yes, they are related. Yeah. I'm not sure you know where where. 
what the update is on that one at the moment. But what a distribution! What a weird distribution. Both granite. Yes, mm. both granite. Both granite outcrops. Yep. There might yeah. be something and in there. Yes, it yeah. might be. They look, both look very similar to Banksia integrifolia, which is the coastal Banksia as well. Sure, so, yeah. Um, yeah, it could be a weird... Interesting. ...weird branch off that, yep. yeah. That's an extraordinary distribution, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Wilson's Prom and the granite. Yep, coastal mm. granite and then inland, yeah. inland granite. There you go. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Okay, we, fun facts. We, we spent a lot of time... Um, not walking very far from the Mount William Cut. It probably took us four hours to, to walk <laughs> about a kilometre and yeah, a half. Staring at the ground constantly. Yeah, yeah. That's right. yeah. There's an aloe casuarina that grows up on Mount William as well. Mm. Uh, Grampiana. Grampiana that, yep. that, that only occurs in the Grampians. Grampians yeah. yeah. um, that's very low form, mm. Uh, mm. Of aloe, of, which is the common name is the she oak. So. Yep. Um, and some other weird things up there. Yeah, it's a, a remarkable spot. Yeah. Really, yeah. really, really great. I mean, the Grampians. Is it's an easy walk up to Mount William too. Like it's, it's not a sealed. difficult rocky mm. walk. It's a seal. It's uphill, but yep. it's it's easy access for people. Yeah. Highly recommend a visit there. Yeah. 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 And I think a third of Victoria's plant species occur in the Grampians. So it's yep. our biodiversity hotspot. Yes. It yes. really is. Yes. And and lots of those endemics, the things that only occur. On two peaks, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or, or you know, there's a really restricted, this, yeah, yeah. So there's lots of endemism in the Grampians. Yep, yep, yep. We've just got a, a little bit of time. I believe you've been um, up recently to Ballarat uh, as part of the Begonia Festival, I believe. Uh, at the back end of the, the Begonia Festival, it, yes. yeah, it, it coincided. We had a, a Botanic Garden of Australia and New Zealand. Begans. Begans, yes. Uh, we had a committee meeting, and what we try and do is hold our committee meetings, have a couple of meetings in Central, in Melbourne, mm. uh, and a couple of meetings out at, at regional botanic gardens. So this time around it was the Ballarat Gardens, so we okay. were hosted by the Ballarat Gardens, and it was the <clears throat> the week after the, the festivals, but it was in full Begonia. Yes. Um, and we had opportunity, we were given a tour looking at the behind the scenes of what the engine room that sits behind the, this remarkable display of tuberous and um, uh, rhizome uh, begonias. And it, 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 in terms of horticulture and skill and just excellence in horticultural practice, I don't think there's anything that goes close in any other garden in possibly Australia. Mm. Read the world. What they're doing with begonias is absolutely remarkable. I mean, they've got it down pat, so they've been doing it for a long they time. Have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they've been doing it for a long time, but so yeah. it's re- it's 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 refining on top of I- existing practices. But they they have completely honed um, this to the point where uh, they they know exactly that it's a little bit like pruning the roses for for Melbourne Cup Day. Yes, yes. They know exactly the date to do task A, task B, task C. Fantastic. But the infrastructure that sits behind it, um, there are huge glass houses, um, 1,200 tuberous begonias um, are, are, are propagated. In terms of the significance of the collection, some of these things were sent to the Ballarat Gardens 100 years ago. Okay. Um, uh, that have been lost from the breeder from the UK. Right. So there's about 70 varieties of, of begonias in the, in the collection, these tuberous begonias. Um, that are, that only occur, that the, the only holdings left on, on wow. in, in the world are, okay. are, are, the, are the Ballarat holdings. 
So there's a there's a sp- there's a conservation thread to ornamental plant conservation thread um, to the to the collection as well, and yeah. and they're really they're really really proud. I mean they're extraordinarily proud. Yeah, well, so of, they ought of, to be of, of mm. the display. Yeah, yeah. sixty thousand people attend the Begonia Festival annually. Um, now I, I'm sure that the Grand Prix is more than sixty thousand people. I, I know which one I'd rather go. To. <laughs> but but, but sixty thousand people is. I mean, that's a, for a horticultural event. That, that's that's impressive. That's pretty impressive. That impressive. That's yeah. pretty impressive. I mean, I don't know how many people go to Mythicus. It's probably tenfold. I'm not really sure. But for Ballarat and the contribution that that garden makes to the Ballarat economy. Yes. So, so begonias are in the DNA of, of of that town. They have been for a long, long time. You know, there's the there's the Begonia Motel, the Begonia Pharmacy. It's huge. It's I did a project in Grade Four, of like the, on Victoria, and Ballarat. The town came up, and right. the thing that we focused on, and I've always obviously been a plant nerd, but <laughs> Ballarat, when I was in Grade Four, was known for their Begonia yeah. Festival. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's yeah. their main tourism. That's their main tourism. I think yeah. they also have a beer festival oh. and a heritage festival. Okay. Um, I'm interested in the heritage <laughs> yeah. one. I'm glad you yeah. qualified that. I, I wasn't sure where that was going. <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 was a, it was a real treat to, um, to go behind the scenes and, and uh, just learn of the, 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 the skill and the integrity yep. and just the... It, it, it's heritage horticulture. Yeah. It's horticulture that has completely disappeared yep. from, from the skill. Yeah. From the yep. skill set yep. of the trade, exactly, hundred percent. Exactly. You know, and, and yep. amenity, and amenity horticulture, amenity horticulture, yeah. just display displays. horticulture, yep. um, mm. and it, it's in pursuit of absolute perfection. Mm. And you know, they're pretty close. Oh yeah, mm. <laughs> uh, the flowers only stay open for four or five days. Oh, I know. And then they get picked off, I and know. then a new bud comes through, yeah. and they get picked off, and a no, new it's bud. Incredible. Comes. The inputs are just amazing. So yeah. I just wanted to honour the the. The significance and the cleverness of Rightly that, of that so festival. Too. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Very quickly, Jeremy, you've been so busy with all the events up in the gardens. Um, yeah, all, all went all pretty went well. well. We, we, we had one uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the, the um, Riley Lee uh, with the Takahatchee, and it's the first time we've had a Twilight event in, the, um, in March. And so we started at six and finished at eight. So it was a very early finish, but it was just stunning, a beautiful oh, evening. Uh, so um, two weeks ago, exactly. Yep. And um, so, uh, so we're breathing a deep <laughs> sigh of relief and, uh, after a fairly busy summer and uh, looking forward to next year. And and what uh, other yes, well, well, the, the garden, well, the autumn colours building up, and I suppose the other thing is we've decided at long last to get stuck in and put a few signs around because uh, uh, thing of heritage, uh, we're, 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 there's a, a lot of significant plants in Cloud mm-hmm. Hill, and and uh, we've got a, quite a few things coming up a hundred years old. Uh, the, uh, the plants from the Yokohama nursery in Japan are all coming up 100 years old, and mm. so we need to put signs on them, explain oh, them do. to people, yes. and, and the, the connection. Oh, Jeremy. yeah, there's uh, <laughs> connections with Ernest Wilson, Chinese Wilson, and the Arnold Arboretum in America, and and his collecting in China and Japan, and you know the, this all goes back uh, to the 1920s and and to that. Uh, Culture, the international culture of, of uh, yeah, collecting the botanic gardens and the, the more serious nurseries mm. yeah, all around the world. Yes. So, so the, the Woolwich family were right in the middle of it. Yes. There is no doubt that um, Cloud Hill would it, it meets the definition of a botanic garden. It could be you could be registered as a botanic garden within the Begans definition. 
without a doubt. Blimey. That's food for thought. Think about that. <laughs> it's, it's, honestly, it's worth considering. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm, I'm slightly bowled over. Uh, well, yeah. Happy to chat about that outside of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. A conversation that definitely yeah. should be had. I, I reckon. Yeah. Mm. Fantastic. Um, the other thing we should very quickly mention, because I don't think um, you may not be in before then, but, but every year there's a Botanic Gardens Day. Yes. And that, I think, comes up end of May? May 28. 28. So Is it? I said 26, 28. Uh, yeah. well, the last Sunday in May. Okay. I think that's the, I think that's the 28th. And, and that's, that's just, a, it's an opportunity just to celebrate the fact that we have this phenomenal network of Botanic Gardens across Australia and the contribution that we make to a whole range of different mm. things, species conservation, mm. plant conservation, community engagement, learning and inspiring people about, about horticulture and plants. Yep. And there'll be a lot of events in, in different botanic gardens right around Australia it, to celebrate. Each participating botanic gardens does a, a, a walk or a talk or a, a, something, special, something, special. something special on that day. Yep. Fantastic. So, yeah, 28th of, of 26. May. 26th of May. I was. I was right. You were right. I was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 26th of May. 26th. Beautiful. Brilliant. All right. Thanks, Chloe. Okay. On that note, uh, we have run out of time. A big thank you to the whole team this morning and also to uh, Robin and Rosemary who've been handling all the calls for us. We will, of course, uh, be back again next Sunday morning at 7.30. So, until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.